0: Hi everyone, Jason here. On May the 14th, Stephen and myself will be appearing with the one and only Mark Lewison at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary, Dublin. We're going to be celebrating 60 years of a hard day's night, and we would love you to join us. For tickets, go to paviliontheatre.ie or nothingisrealpod.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. Welcome to Nothing Is Real, a podcast about the Beatles. Everybody thinks they know the Beatles, but how much do we really know? My name is Jason Carty. My name is Stephen Cockcroft. we're live on tape from Dublin and Belfast. Where we left you last week, it was November 1968, and the Beatles' plans to play a residency at the Roundhouse in Chalk Farm in London had hit what you might say it was a brick wall, wouldn't you say? Yes. Roundhouse is postponed. The Roundhouse is postponed. And this is reported, as we said at the end of last week, in the November the 30th, 1968 uh, edition of the new Musical Express. But there is still... Uh, you know uh, notions that this thing is going to happen in January, and and what is interesting is that this is where the the get back date kind of appears for the first time because it's reported on December the seventh, nineteen sixty eight, that the live show is formally postponed until January the eighteenth, nineteen sixty nine, with a rehearsal and run through possibly on January the sixteenth and the seventeenth.
1: Because again, we have Derek Taylor, who is contradicting Paul, who, if you remember, had said. Oh, we might go to Liverpool. So Derek is very clear, not happening in Liverpool. And I love the reason why (laughs) he says it's not happening. He said, um, it does not look as though it will be the roundhouse and reports that it will take place in Liverpool are also unlikely. The show will probably be in London because it's being taped in colour for TV and all the
0: colour equipment is in London. No colour in Liverpool. Liverpool. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty logical, you know. No no color, uh you know, at the uh, in any of the places they were planning to shoot <laughs> for uh, in 1969. There is just
1: no color television cameras anywhere in the UK outside London.
0: That's a pretty logical uh, uh decision to make. Um but something I've always found interesting in the melee of all of this is that in December 1968, Michael Lindsay-Hogg does record a television special with one of the top rock groups in the world, the Rolling Stones, and this is the Rock and Roll Circus. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, so, how, how I mean, if you look at the timeline, it always seems strange to me that these gigs are due to happen in the third week of December, with Michael Lindsey Hogg at the helm, and then all of a sudden... Michael Lindsay-Hogg how come he's directing the rock and roll circus on the uh, 10th or the pardon me on the 11th and 12th of December 1968
1: I think this speaks to the disorganisation of apple you know mm. the beatles are used to this you know they click their fingers and it will happen and you know they they don't seem to have learnt the lesson from magical mystery tour that you can't just rustle up a film studio at short notice, you can't just, uh, you know, block book editing suites and things like that. So the two things are definitely running in parallel because it's in November of 1968 that the plans really start Just, I was going to say, start to roll for the rock and roll circus. Hey, hey, This has been talked about for quite a while and there is a suspicion in Rolling Stones fan circles that... Mick Jagger, who is the prime mover behind the Rock and Roll Circus, is really trying to do something to compete with Magical Mystery Tour. You know, Magical Mystery Tour was made by the Beatles. It was for TV. And he, he sees that it isn't really hasn't landed particularly well. And he is trying to do something that will compete or will surpass Magical Mystery Tour. And he's a big fan of traditional circuses and things like this, supposedly. Um, and this is at a period when the Rolling Stones are basically falling apart. Brian is in Meltdown. The Stones, again, have not toured much. And this is going to be a return to live performance. And the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus will be the first step. And it's going to be huge because they're going to have Dr. John. They're going to have Steve, Stevie Winwood mm-hmm. is going to come as part of a super group because traffic is is sort of breaking apart. And... But none of this is happening. You you know, Dr. John is not booked. Steve Winwood says he's not doing it. So it's all last minute as well. Klein is is there and present, but he's not happy about this. He doesn't think this is a particularly good idea. Uh, The Stones are putting up their own money. They've got Michael Lindsay Hogg on board. So it would be interesting to sit down with Lindsay Hogg and sort of say, well, what was the plan? Were you kind of going to do them (laughs) on alternate days, or?
0: Or or was there just nobody else who could direct this type of show? It seems that he was quite suddenly in demand. And if you're looking at your late 1968 calendar, the White Album comes out on the 22nd of November, and it's two weeks later that the Stones put out Beggar's Banquet. and In as much as the White Album was a bit of a sea change from the psychedelia of 67, Beggar's Banquet is also a sea change from that pop psychedelia that the Stones had been delivering in 67 as well. And there's this notion, just as the Beatles want to do a TV special for their new album, there's this notion that the Rock and Roll Circus is the TV special that's designed to promote uh, Beggar's Banquet, because like the Beatles, they've been off the road and they haven't really... You know, particularly with Brian Jones in disarray, they haven't really coalesced around what their new future as a live band will be. It's very strange to us now with gigs happening in 2024 for the Rolling Stones to think that at the end of 68, they weren't really a live going concern. Yeah. So this is this is intended to get them
1: back, um, you know, on the road. The, the, this TV show again is a TV show. And if you remember, one of the highlights is John Lennon. Eric Clapton, the yep. super group. But John Lennon was never intended to be on that bill. It was Steve Winwood, You know, the, he, he was going to be the the, the the big singer around whom this super group was going to be fashioned. And Lennon is brought in pretty last minute. You know, I think it's kind of mid-November. He is um, tapped to do this. And Jagger... A little bit reluctantly because, again, you don't want
0: the Beatles stealing the limelight, but needs much. Well, it is a remarkable thing, particularly in the context of the Beatles were supposed to be doing their own live show. And, you know, maybe Paul is the motivator for it. We haven't really heard John's opinion on what the Roundhouse shows should have been. He is going, you know, Two Virgins comes out in the week between the White Album and... Beggar's Banquet. He has had his own sadness with um, him and Yoko and, and their miscarriage. Uh, but all of a sudden, actually, you do have an actual Beatle performing live in front of a crowd with a band for a TV special, albeit one that stays in the can until 1996. So Lennon is there. And you do actually, through the performance of the Dirty Mac who are doing your blues, you do get to see, oh, this is what a december nineteen sixty eight performance of a white album track could have been like. Yes,
1: so your blues is the track that he chooses. It's a very raw, very visceral take on that song. It would be fascinating to hear how the beatles live you know the 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 album track is has got some pretty severe edits in it. Um, But yeah, Clapton, I think, uh, gives a great performance on that. And Lennon's vocal on that is sensational.
0: Yeah, he can definitely cut it in front of a live crowd. And, you know, you can't help but think of, oh, you know, what might have been captured if you managed to get a, a Beatles performance of that song at that time. I don't think there was any realm of possibility that the Beatles were going to turn up on a Rolling Stones television special themselves.
1: No. No, as I say, I think I think Lennon Lennon was there, perhaps not under sufferance, but Jagger was reluctant, and it, it was really a last minute decision because it, you know they were approaching the filming date and they did not have bands. They were offered Led Zeppelin or the New Yardbirds, and, and Jagger said no.
0: It is amazing when you think about how. Um, how early it was in Zeppelin's career, what it would have meant if Zeppelin had turned up because Jethro Tull are on the bill and they're at the start of their career. And it's an interesting piece of footage. But uh, Zeppelin would have been incredible.
1: Yeah, Zeppelin would have been incredible. You know, people will know the reason why it was left on the shelf for 25 years is that the Stones felt they had been upstaged by the Who. And I think they were upstaged by the Who. You know, for for lots of reasons, the, the Stones were at a low ebb And supposedly they were watching the footage and Klein said to Jagger, well, you can't put that out. And Jagger said, why? And Klein said, well, because the the Who blew you off off your own stage. And that was enough to make Jagger, you know, and then Klein splits from the stones and he takes the film with him. One thing I didn't realise is that Jagger is doing a Klein impression. When? When he is sitting with John Lennon. He's wearing Klein's pale blue polo. You know, he's, he's wearing the turtleneck sweater that Klein oh, always yeah. wears and he's affecting this kind of weird American accent. I think the whole thing is very stilted and, and extremely unfunny. But apparently yes. that's, that's what he was going for.
0: Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, well, you know, it's um, the who-do uh, knock spots off the stones it's uh, as i said the the film stays um, under lock and key until 1996 but the who's performance of a quick one while he's away appears in 1978 in the kids are all right who documentary and it's uh, it's the only song they perform on the night but it is explosive but the the chaotic nature of the rock and roll circus was that it took about 15 hours of non-stop filming over one day in a studio in Wembley. And by the time the Stones are due to take the stage, Brian Jones, who apparently had decided that he hated the Rolling Stones, he told Michael Lindsay Hogg the night before the recording, um, is what you might call the worst for wear. But they are playing their new single, You Can't Always Get What You Want. And if you see that footage now, I'm delighted it exists because it's a fantastic performance. It's not yet this kind of Adult radio rock classic, yeah. and it's essentially like their new song. And you're like, "Oh, that's a very good song." This isn't Ruby Tuesday.
1: Yeah, the other person who appears is uh, Marianne Faithful. Yes, and Yoko. Now we mentioned uh, that that Yoko had suffered a miscarriage. Marianne Faithful suffered a miscarriage two days before Yoko lost her child. Oh, I didn't know that. And two weeks later, they're both being you know, requested to come and appear on a stage uh, for film cameras.
0: Um, now, in case you don't know, the Dirty Mac is, you know, John Lennon with Eric Clapton, Mitch Mitchell and Keith uh, Richards. And they don't just do, do your blues, which is, you know, interesting that that's the first song. But there's also the the whole lot of Yoko track as well, if you yes. if you like your Yoko. And, uh, and we got a, a box set, didn't we, recently, where we got some rehearsal footage and he's doing a kind of version of Revolution.
1: It's interesting to think that that was, uh, you know, a, a possibility. Um, mm. But, uh, you know, I think I prefer the fact that he was doing Europe Blues. It's a more uh, suitable song, I suppose, for Clapton to be doing. And interesting yes. Keith Richards on bass, Bill Wyman should have been on bass, but Keith Richards went, uh-uh, uh, I'm the one getting on stage with John Lennon and Eric Clapton, not you. <laughs>
0: And I know on this show, you know, we, we often point out that we don't like Eric Clapton. Anyway, moving on, um, uh, that's the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus, which has almost been in circulation for as long as it was under lock and key, 28 years. There you go. Is that your mortality maths coming into play? That's this, that's this episode's version of mortality maths. But it's a, it's, it's a curio. But the other knock-on effect of the Rock and Roll Circus is that John Lennon gets FaceTime with Alan Klein.
1: Yes, very briefly, a kind of a handshake and a hello, but he is aware. Now, this is the point at which Klein is, Jagger is starting to lose. I was going to say trust, but perhaps there was never trust. (laughs) But he's he's losing he's losing patience with Klein. Uh, So Klein is exiting the Stones' orbit as he is meeting John Lennon, and I think as soon as he does meet John Lennon, you know the writing is on the wall because Klein's never made any uh, secret of the fact that he wants the Beatles as a client. So yeah, that's again an, a nice piece of foreshadowing. What would the Beatles concert have been like? We have a tantalizing glimpse from... <laughs> Go on. ...the Melody Maker report on the 14th of December, which says that an American singer is going to be a guest star on the Beatles live show.
0: Oh, oh can I guess who it is? Is it, is it like the hot new Neil Young? Is it one of
1: those guys? No, it's uh, Chex Notes... Andy Williams
0: Ah, okay
1: Yeah, Andy Williams made guest on a Beatles TV spectacular being made by the Beatles on the 18th of January Andy dropped into London for a brief visit to the Beatles' Apple headquarters last
0: week en route back to America from Paris Amazing, Derek Taylor said that Paul McCartney went to see Andy's show in London earlier this year and the two of them got on very well we had dinner on the latest visit and George Harrison dropped in. Nothing was definitely arranged, but Andy would like the Beatles to do a guest spot on his show and he may in turn appear on the new Beatles show. I'm sure he'd love them to do a guest spot on the show. Um, and the, But this is December 14, 1968. The venue for the Beatles spectacular still has not been decided, said Derek Taylor at press time.
1: I would love to have seen the Beatles and Andy Williams.
0: <laughs> have you seen the uh, the Andy Williams uh, at the Grammys with... Um, Paul Simon and John Lennon. Yes, I have. It's very from funny. 1975. It is very, very funny. Everybody's refreshed. Yes, and um, uh, John Lennon and Paul Simon are presenting a uh, an award for Record of the Year, and uh, the person who goes up to present or to collect the award uh, in the absence of the winner is Art Garfunkel, and it leads to even more crack. As it's they hilarious
1: chips. Have you ever seen Andy Williams? Live? Yes. Um, no, I have not. I saw Andy Williams twice. <laughs> and? He was great. He was genuinely brilliant. And he did not take himself seriously at all, which was immediately the most endearing thing about the evening. And the best thing was, as I was leaving, this incredibly old gentleman um, in the row in front turned around and said, did you enjoy the show? And I said, yes, yes, I did. And he said, it's great to see some young people here. <laughs> Has I, that ever happened since? No.
0: Mm. I think I was, you know, well
1: over 40 at the time.
0: Um, Andy Williams uh, uh, at the time was married to Claudine Lange. And if you don't know that story, look it up on Wikipedia and have a nice glass of cocoa.
1: Yes. Or, or, or better yet, just get the uh, deluxe edition of Some Girls. Uh, oh, yeah. the, Rolling, the Rolling Stones uh, write a song about it. So there you go. The expanded edition.
0: Yes, it's a wonder it's not a Netflix documentary at this point. Anyway, um, the dream of a Beatles live show is still afoot. And no better uh, magazine than the Beatles Monthly are going to give away 50 pairs of tickets, that's 100 tickets, um, to people who want to enter a competition. So in the December 1968 uh, Beatles Monthly, they say the news that the Beatles are planning to appear on stage again has absolutely delighted every Beatles admirer. But their decision to perform in front of an audience once more seems to be a very sudden turnabout, a complete reversal of everything they've been saying for the past two years. Many people have already been surprised that this new album has strong tinges of early Beatles about it. Simple cover, simple titles, simple tunes, with certain exceptions of course. Who said revolution? Their intention therefore is to put on a series of shows which will culminate in a final performance which will be filmed for transmission in this country and overseas. Apple Corps Managing Director Neil Aspinall has already been negotiating for the sale of the programme to one of the major companies in the United States. So, something's happening.
1: This is the official organ of the Beatles publicity <laughs> and the whole article is actually very informative because it goes on to touch on the the, the millions of pounds that have been made by Northern Songs mm-hmm. about the idea behind Apple and it said they've even carried this idea into the field of big business with Alexis Mardas, the very talented Greek inventor who is coming up with the most extraordinary ideas, which could well revolutionize whole areas, (laughs) not only of British show business, but industry as well. The New Year's concerts will do many things. First, it will give the Beatles an opportunity to perform in front of their fans once again. Not a very large number, admittedly Only a few thousand But nevertheless, it will have happened And secondly, the performance by being shown all over the world Will enable their fans in all those overseas countries To see them probably much better than they would If they were sitting in the back row of a local stadium And remember that stadiums can only hold a few thousand people Whereas on television, they are seen by millions So, yeah, plans are afoot It's it's going to happen It's going to happen
0: yeah, and it's it's a very long article and it, it's well worth looking up, but they talk about, you know, there's a lot of work to do before they get on stage. They'll have to rehearse the numbers and work them up into an act once again. Um, performing the songs in the recording studio will not enable them to perform them equally well on stage. What will the performance consist of? Well, at the moment, I understand they intend to base the whole thing on their new double album with several oldies thrown in for good measure. Oldies obviously being songs that are maybe three years old. Uh, The Beatles are shortly to finalise details for their one-hour television show. It will not now take place at the Roundhouse as announced, but there is a competition um, to win tickets. That's exciting. It is exciting. And
1: again, we get a reference here that um, uh, there will be a late decision, maybe made to include guest appearances by other Apple recording artists such as Mary Hopkin and Jackie Lomax. So... The press is still there. They're still selling this idea and their official, in inverted commas, magazine is giving away tickets. I would like to know if those tickets were ever actually sent out to anybody, but I haven't been able to find that out. We do have a list of the yeah, winners. Yeah, I never
0: saw that. Let's, uh, let's pull
1: out the list of the winners. I noticed that the very first person was S. Spink of 14C Alexandra Mansions, West End Lane, London NW6. And I did wonder... Was that any relation to Hugh Spink, who produces the Titles magazine? But I asked him and he said, unfortunately,
0: not. (laughs) No stone left unturned by the Cockcroft fact-finding machine. (laughs) Indeed not. I did read this entire list of 50 winners on the off chance, you know, one of them might have been... A Carty. (laughs) A far-off relative or, you know somebody who became, you know, future famous, you know, like a a Mr. B. Eno won a ticket or something like that. But um, no such luck. Um, But what does happen, of course, as we all know, is that January the 2nd, 1969, is when they start the Get Back Let It Be sessions. And what you notice when you go through the stories at the time is very much in the press's eyes, this is a continuation of the promise in the stories in October and November that, oh, there is a live show coming.
1: Yes, absolutely. Uh, As I said last time, we look at Get Back and think, you know, the White Album is so far in the past and this is a new album and they've moved on to something else. But you're right, it is a continuation of what was intended to be the promotion of the White Album. It's just, take it on a slightly different character.
0: And yeah, the, so, so it's still being reported in the enemy, the first enemy of 1969 on January the 4th. Um, you know, as exclusively forecast in The Enemy two weeks ago, the Beatles are to record their first live album consisting of 12 or 14 original new songs by Lennon and McCartney and George Harrison at their London concert on January the 18th. The show will not now be open to the public. It will last at least 90 minutes and will be taped on colour for screening on TV. An album from Apple will be released in March or April and no venue has been decided the live concert will be taped by Apple Films and will be produced by Dennis O'Dell and directed by Michael Lindsay Hogg, former director of Ready, Steady, Go! And they also mention Andy Williams. Uh, he's taping an hour-long special for US screening on March 19th, and according to the singer's manager, the Beatles and Donovan will guest on his TV special. Oh, our favourite pair. An Apple spokesman... Dream lineup. It's the dream lineup. <laughs> um And they talk about the Andy Williams visit to London, which is a very real thing. But what I like about this kind of reporting is that, uh, you know, again, we kind of see... Get Back Let It Be as a kind of a fait accompli, that, of course, there were, even, even though we'd seen from the documentary that they weren't planning on going on the roof, we kind of know how it ends. But this yeah. is still very much supposed to be, oh, a live, um, you know, television spectacular and a live album. And, you know, this is the news as it breaks. Did somebody say break? I do apologise. End of part one. Intermission.
1: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
0: End of intermission. Part two. Welcome back. So this is now being very much sold as also a live album, not just a concert. So in the same week as the enemy, the Melody Maker and the 4th are saying the Beatles are going to record their first ever live album just weeks after the phenomenally successful double LP, The Beatles. And don't forget, you know, the Yellow Submarine album is about to pop out <laughs> two or three weeks later as well. Um, um, and, and we have a quote from Derek Taylor.
1: Yes, I like this quote. Derek says... The group start writing and rehearsing a number of songs this weekend. There is no shortage of material. Paul has eight or nine songs finished. John has a few, and George also has some material. They're writing all the time. It's a question of selecting the right material for the show. Um, What they're promising now is a 90-minute concert Mm. out of which a live album will be distilled So clearly it is going to be a continuation of the White Album. They are going to be doing other songs than the 40 minutes needed to uh, produce the live album. The interesting thing to me is that when this Melody Maker um, article comes out on the 4th of January, Derek Taylor is already casting doubt on the fact that the show will take place. On January the 18th. So we see get back. And, and January the 18th is still very much in the air. Yeah,
0: we're told at the start that that's the date.
1: Derek is saying, you know, he's talking about this weekend. He's talking about they're starting to rehearse this weekend. So this is the 2nd of January when the get back sessions start. And he is already saying, Taylor says this date of January the 18th is now doubtful. And the venue still has to be fixed. Place is mentioned have included the Roundhouse in London and Liverpool's Cavern, but Derek Taylor stressed this week that the venue has still not been selected. The date that we originally stated for The Spectacular, which was to be recorded for television, was our own date. Because of that, we're not fixed by it. If we can't do it then, it doesn't matter. The best thing I can say at the moment is we hope the shows will happen before the end of the winter.
0: Mm. So, yeah, nothing is totally cast in stone. I do like how the... um The article notes that, oh, you know, they did record their concerts at the Hollywood Bowl, but they were never released. I like the fact that that was kind of part of the knowledge at the time. I wasn't sure whether Mm. it was or not. And if you walk through, you know, the weekly British music papers um, in 1969, in January 1969, Enemy and Melody Maker, uh, you know, they are producing contemporaneous reports about what is happening at Twickenham, which, as far as they're concerned, is still this December concert.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is, this is fascinating that you are getting, uh, as you say, live, almost live reportage from what's happening. So on the 11th of January 69, the NME says the Beatles were this week writing new songs and rehearsing in London for their long-awaited first public appearance together since 1966. And as reported in last week's NME, the January 18th concert will be recorded for an Apple album for release in the spring. The performance will be staged at Twickenham studios. So even allowing for a few days of a lag between, you know, the report being filed or an interview being conducted and then the, the magazine coming out,
0: this is still at the end of the first week. NME mm.
1: is saying, Twickenham, it's going to be in Twickenham.
0: Um, Within the following week, Melody Maker is saying, you know, the one hour documentary film of the Beatles in the recording studio is currently being shot at Twickenham. where The Beatles are rehearsing songs for their live concerts. It's never been done before, said press officer Derek Taylor. There's never been a film of the Beatles actually at work. It'll all be there, the work, the breaks, everything. When the shooting is finished and the thing's been edited, it'll be offered for sale to the world TV companies. I hope to get it on a streaming service sometime in the twenty first century. No, I, I added in that last line. Um, but uh, Derek confirms that there's been eight new songs completed for the TV concert, and but he does say that it will definitely not take place on Saturday the eighteenth, um, but it might take place perhaps abroad. And they do report on the Roman amphitheaters in North Africa, so they're definitely getting a um, uh, you know the full news as we now know it from the, the documentary. And uh, he reports that they've uh, shelved their plans to release an EP of the Yellow Submarine music. Um, And it progresses through subsequent weeks as well. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And as I say, that article saying it won't take place on Saturday the 18th comes out on Saturday the 18th. So... <laughs> so yeah in connection with the uh, Roman Amphitheatre Derek says there may now be some truth in this it's an idea around at the moment to do the shows abroad and take the fans along it would certainly be expensive but an idea is to run some form of competition and take the winners I imagine Mr Spink uh, of the uh, Beatles magazine
0: competition winner competition winner could be in Tunisia I'd love to go to a Roman Amphitheatre Where is Tunisia? It is North North Africa, isn't it? Um, However, sad news, Stephen, because one week later, the enemy says the Beatles are still rehearsing new songs for their next album, but plans for a public or TV concert seem to be growing dimmer. More definite is a full length TV documentary, which has been produced during the group's rehearsals. There's sufficient material for the film to last one hour. (laughs) Yeah. uh, When completed, and it'll be offered to the major companies for consideration. So you can see
1: that the live plan is slipping away. But the fact that it's being reported as it happens, I think, is absolutely fascinating. You, you know, we're used because, as you say, we're looking at this with hindsight. We know what happens. We know I had the benefit of, of, of Get Back. But these are music reporters doing live coverage of, of like a break, the breaking story is the Beatles will be going to North Africa. No, hang on a minute. The breaking story is they're not going to go <laughs> to, to to North Africa. And this is the same sort of press reporting that will at one point uh, report that you know there's been a fist fight and the the tempers are fraying and it's all getting quite quite fractious. But focusing on this idea of the live show, you can see quite clearly. Uh, the pars that be, Dennis O'Dell, Derek Taylor are now saying we better dampen down the expectation for a live show. Notwithstanding that, in the February 1969 edition of the Beatles Monthly Book, addresses of 50 winners who should each have received <laughs> a double ticket for the Beatles live performances. However, as we have already reported, the show has now been put off. I'm very happy to tell you, that the Beatles have decided that each winner will receive a consolation gift (laughs) if no new show date is fixed. I have tried to find out what the consolation (laughs) gift was, but I do not know. So if Mr. Spink, Mr. Grove, Miss Hannant, Mr. Ralston, Mr. Wagstaff, (laughs) if these are real people, if they could get in touch and let us know, did did they actually receive a consolation
0: gift? I mean, they... They have posted their entire addresses yes, in mad. that kind of old magazine it's way. So it is quite tempting to just drop everyone a, a postcard. You know, while that's coming out in the Beatles Monthly in February 69, you do have this kind of nice report in February 8th edition of The Enemy. Um, rehearsals for the group's planned concert have now definitely become the basis for a documentary. Some of the specifically written songs were heard by startled passers-by in London's Savile Row last Thursday, where the Beatles gave a spontaneous performance on the roof of Apple and were filmed for the programme. It is understood that almost all 12 tracks on the new album, centred around the documentary, are now complete. Final recording will take place within the next fortnight, with a view to the LP being released in April or May. And we all know how that story goes. But yes, I, I, I don't think there is a consolation prize to that could match... The p- a pair of tickets for a Beatles gig in 1969. I don't care how many copies of McCartney Three Imagined they stuffed through my letterbox. <laughs> I wouldn't be
1: happy. You would not be happy. You would not be happy. <laughs> it is inconceivable in this day and age that any band would be trying to record uh, a, an album in the glare. You know, with you, you, you imagine they're sort of old-fashioned reporters with kind of, you know, bus tickets in the rim of their hat and... Uh, you know, Macs and <laughs> notebooks peering yeah, through. Big flash
0: that they hold in one yeah. hand. Yes. a Big circular yeah. bulb.
1: Desperately trying to get information on
0: what the, what is happening.
1: What is happening in Twickenham. But uh, yes, what might have been?
0: Well, as I said right at the top of these two episodes, we're not really into the whole counterfactual world of the Beatles, even though it's. Uh, uh, a rich vein, yes. But I think we're allowed to have a little bit of, you know, ha- ask a couple of what if type questions related to something that almost happened and did eventually morph into being something else. So, what could a December nineteen sixty eight show have been like? So, assuming
1: the Roundhouse was available, what would the Bricks have heard in December nineteen sixty eight? Well, you know, who are the support acts? Are there guests on stage? What's the set list? So support acts, we we have heard mention of Mary Hopkin and Jackie Lomax and James Taylor, all of whom were mentioned at one point. Could I just say my research has extended to getting in touch with Mary Hopkin? Yes, she's very active on Twitter, doesn't do interviews, but is active on Twitter. She's very active on Twitter. So I had a Twitter exchange with Mary Hopkin in early July, 2023, and I asked her if she had any memory of a possible guest spot or a support spot. She said no, but that it was not unusual that she would not be kept informed by Apple. So she would just turn up when she was told to turn up. But she has no recollection. But uh, she was the big new star in late 68. Hugely successful and
0: a huge success for the Apple label. And she was a TV star as well because she had come to the attention of Apple by uh, winning the TV show um I forgot opportunity knock thank you <laughs> um she, yeah she twiggy,
1: came the, it was twiggy twiggy, <laughs> twiggy got in touch with paul twiggy ah. got in touch with paul and said
0: have you seen this girl who's won opportunity knock um so you know she was a presentable performer you know she never had yes. a very l- long live career she kind of you know made records and retired from live but she would have been very much um An it star at the minute. And we also just have to once again remember the timeline for Apple that in August they would put out our first four, you know, their first four singles. And this is four months into the label. Uh, Those were the days had been this insanely huge number one hit um, for Mary Hopkin, been number two uh, in the US. And yeah, of course it should have been a showcase for her.
1: Yeah, so that first single sold one and a half million copies in the US. And global sales topped 8 million. So it was rivaling the sales of Hey Jude. You know, it was that successful. And then in February 69, her debut album, Postcard, comes out. It was produced by Paul McCartney. includes covers of three songs from Donovan, who also (laughs) played on the album. So, you know, she had material ready to go. Um, The the follow-up single was Goodbye, which was written by Paul. Mm -hmm. It's not a Beatles song, should not be on the Abbey Road box Mm. set. But, and again, it reaches number two. So I think my money is on Mary Hopkin to open. Fair enough. And,
0: uh, you know, joined by Donovan would have been absolutely fine.
1: I think so. I think so. She's still, I have to say, she's still putting out music. Um, Just very briefly, she sang backing vocals with Linda on Let It Be. Mm Mm-hmm. Some people say not, but this is a hill I will die on. And fancy that. Ladies' voices on a Beatles (laughs) record. Whatever next. Whatever next. But (laughs) Earth Song, Ocean Song, October 71, is the best album ever released on the Apple label, not to include a Beatle. Okay. Um, Cannot recommend it highly enough. Fantastic. She was married to Tony Visconti. I think we mentioned this in our Press to Play episode. Um, there's a very good live album um, Where they do a cover of If I Fell She's still recording Put on an album called Two Hearts In May of this year It is very good I noticed she's also started An inter- internet radio oh. show Sort of Mary Hopkins and Friends So I'm thinking Perhaps perhaps we're getting close To
0: <laughs> an interview possibly That might be nice Anyway If she needs friends yeah. Uh, Mary Hopkin needs a friend um, I know you're a constant advocate of Earth song, ocean song and it's yes. come out, uh, there's been a vinyl reissue of that this year, if people like their vinyl, so I
1: have about 10 copies of it.
0: <laughs> well go Seriously. get 11th go now um, There's one Apple artist who has material ready to go and it always feels like the one that got away from Apple who could have been on the bill and that is Mr. James Taylor
1: Yes, Yes He was the next big thing at Apple and it just didn't kind of happen. But he was brought to uh, Apple by Peter Asher. Paul recounts his first impression of him. He said, I just heard his voice and his guitar and I thought he was great. And he came and played live. So it was just like, wow, he's great. Paul actually, at James Taylor's request, inducted James Taylor into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He was the first non-British act signed to Apple. And uh, his song, Carolina in My Mind, Mm -hmm. contains a reference to the Beatles, um, Mm -hmm. the holy host of others standing around me, because uh, he had to sort of audition for Paul McCartney and George Harrison, both of whom appear on that song. And James Taylor tells a very funny story about auditioning and uh, said he played a song to them, something in the way she moves. And they liked yeah. it. George liked it so much, he went home and wrote it.
0: <laughs> well, um, James Taylor's uh, debut album uh, comes out on Apple. It comes out in uh, December the 6th, 1968. So it fits the timeline that the album would have been just out. Um, You know, as you said, Carolina, in my mind, is, is the big hit album from that. And you know, out of good will or good faith, he's allowed to go off with uh, Peter Asher um, and, and sign with Warners because 18, not even 18 months later, he's putting out Sweet Baby James and he becomes the James Taylor megastar that we all know and love today. Yeah,
1: it what could have been? I think that first Apple album does not show him to best advantage. Richard Hewson, I think, got involved and did these sort of little... St- very sort of baroque mm. string arrangements which don't really serve the songs well but uh but yes they 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 let him go and i i think it was a sort of magnanimous gesture
0: yeah but i think um you know definitely he would have been on the bill in december 1968 yeah Wh- who else
1: i think Jackie Lomax might have been because if you open with Mary Hopkin uh and obviously Donovan would come on at the end of her set and do Lord of the Reedy River Um, then James Taylor. You've got two sort of acoustic based performers and then Jackie Lomax is more of a
0: rock act. Yeah Um and Jackie Lomax is one of uh, again this, 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 what what are called our first four, the four apple singles that come out on august the 30th 1968 and uh, his single is sour milk sea which we know is a george harrison composition demo versions are on the white album box set and it's a single where he is essentially backed by the beatles almost
1: yeah so it's uh um paul ringo george eric clapton nicky hopkins i think at 20 Twenty three, we could probably get AI to extract Jackie's vocals and put George's <laughs> vocals in. And and
0: well, it's the
1: it's the last Beatles song. <laughs> I
0: did I did see a plaintive voice ask on Twitter, um, uh, you know, why couldn't the Beatles do a single out of a George demo? I was like, yeah, shut up. <laughs> um, but Jackie Lomax, you know, he's kind of come from that pedigree that you'd kind of expect from British rock stars at the time, where he'd been in a. Mersey beat band called The Undertakers, played Hamburg, toured around the US, um, came back and kind of overlapped with Brian Epstein in playing a Savile Theatre.
1: Yes, so uh, he, he was back in, in Britain in 1967, then the Beatles signed him to Apple Records. There was a lot of effort put in, particularly by George in that first single and the album. Uh, which was called, Is This What You Want?, to which the public resigningly said, not really. <laughs> no, don't think so. <laughs> I really don't understand why it wasn't a, a hit, you know, because the songs are good. The band is fantastic. There's lots of sort of guest artists there. George put a lot of effort into the production, but it just didn't land well. But he would have had that first single out. He would have had a handful of songs uh, in the can. And I think he could easily have done, you know, a 30 minute, opening set yep. using a session band perhaps Nicky
0: Hopkins dare we suggest Eric Clapton dare we suggest it and uh, so we talk about you know the the Apple first four Jack Lomax Mary Hopkins obviously the Beatles uh, who put out Hey Jude uh, no room for the Black Dyke Mills band
1: I don't think so they could have been out <laughs> in the lobby you know with like a bucket collecting mm. money for Christmas money for orphans or something that okay. would have worked
0: yeah, I suppose. You would have
1: them, yeah, outside doing Christmas carols.
0: Who else then does that leave? Who else could have been on the bill? Yoko? <laughs>
1: um, I think she was sort of pretty frail at that stage. Although, you know, she gives a good performance on the uh, rock and roll circus, notwithstanding.
0: She, yeah. Um, not unimaginable that the Hare Krishna temple might have turned up and done a bit of chanting, you know, if they're, if they're hanging around in the Possibly. corner in Twickenham, maybe a small number of them could have uh, got the crowd going.
1: Yeah, I don't think they sort of appear uh, until January 69. I mean, he meets them, George sort of meets them in December 68. So perhaps, yes, they could have been the, uh, you know,
0: the ushers at the concert. Um, But obviously we're talking our headline uh, act is the Beatles. And the thing you have to get at is we're at this kind of point in, in rock music where, you know those the, those kind of twenty minute package concerts or thirty minute headline sets are going yeah. into the rear view mirror, and the expectation might have been that the Beatles would have done a bit more.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, if you look at the reports of the the live show, it starts off at ninety minutes. Mm. Um, so I think that's you know a, a twenty five minute gig is not going to cut it in nineteen sixty eight. You know, twenty-five minutes. The Grateful Dead are just warming up. After that, <laughs> uh, that that length of time. So, yeah, I think it's going to have to be a much more structured set list. It's going to have to run for at least ninety minutes. I think that's the bare minimum. And if if you sort of think about what the Stones, yeah, would do in nineteen sixty-nine, or what the Who would do, I, I I think it's ninety minutes is what what I'm I'm wanting my money back. I want my consolation prize if I don't get 90 minutes.
0: Now, you have submitted to me what you think a potential set list would have been. And I'm happy to air it to the masses. I I have some thoughts. I have some theories. um, But make your case. Okay, well, what I would say is I have proposed
1: that there will be guests, artists, on stage with the Beatles. So if we sort of are working with Mary Hopkin, James Taylor... Uh, Jackie Lomax. I'm I'm suggesting that we're probably going to have Nicky Hopkins. They're going to need a keyboard player on yep. stage. For my set list, they're going to need a horn section. So I think we go with Signs Incorporated, and I think they're probably going to need Eric Clapton to come on.
0: It's just what he does at that time.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I think he's hanging around with George for one reason or another. Um, so I think I think uh, Eric Clapton would be a guest star at that point. So <laughs> I think the logic is to say four songs for John, four for Paul, four for jo- George, solo spot for Ringo, and then something special at the end, Jason. Something oh, special okay. at the end. <laughs> so I think they're promoting the new album.
0: Yep, exactly.
1: So... So I think they open with Back in the USSR. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's a great concert opener in 1968. It's a new song. It's what opens the album. They can fade in. George Martin will be backstage, you know, twiddling the knobs to create the uh, jet engine off a BBC sound effects record. Uh, I think that's a good opener. I think go straight into Dear Prudence.
0: Well, it, it's like the record.
1: Yeah. It's, like the, it's like the record. Donovan will be in the wings. It's a little bit of a shout out to Donovan and the finger picking style. And then I think uh, your blues, because okay. we know that John uh, does this on Rock and Roll Circus. We know that Clapton is very good on that. And I think this is the point at which they bring Eric Clapton onto the stage to join them for that uh that performance.
0: Okay, that's your opening salvo. Back in the USSR, Dear Prudence and Your Blues. Now, you've generously given George a third of the songs.
1: Yeah, I think
0: that's fair. Okay. Um, So you've put down his track four. uh, You you start to go back a little bit, which is I Want to Tell You, that's the opening George gambit.
1: Yes, I think so. I think it's a great, I think it's a great song. I think it's a slightly unusual song. It's a very George- yeah song uh so I think that's his entry onto the onto the set list is I want to tell you okay. sticking with that period, I think I'm gonna give Paul got to get you into my life because that's the excuse to get the horn section
0: okay, so now we've got a horn section on stage
1: we've got we've got science incorporated on stage, and they're doing got to get you into my life then. John gets good morning, good morning because you've got that big, heavy rock sound. So if you listen to the versions of that that turn Mm -hmm. up on the Sgt. Pepper box set where they're essentially playing live on those basic tracks, the Beatles sound fantastic. And with a a horn section on stage, it's going to be great. George comes back in with another song and I'm going to go with Savoy Truffle simply because the the stinging guitar solo, horn section... A little bit of a shout out to Eric Clapton in the lyrics Because, uh, you know, it's all about Eric's love for <laughs> chocolate okay. And then
0: the last song with the horn section, Lady Madonna I think that's reasonable You know, play, play one of the 68 singles uh, And okay. then they
1: finish effectively I suppose the main set With Ringo singing
0: With a little help from my friends. Now I I I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna step in here, and say okay. I wouldn't be surprised if Ringo wanted to sing "Don't Pass Me By," the song he wrote. Do you not think? You think? You no, know, I'm just thinking. That the new album's out. It's his first written song. You know, with a little help from my friends. Yeah, maybe that's a little bit too psychedelic '67. Maybe he wants to come out and just do, you know tell people about losing your hair in a car crash you know i'm just saying i'm not saying it's the right song i'm just saying it's the song that the ego might have chosen
1: i think the ego might have chosen that i think i think i think with a little help from my friends is the one i would go with
0: okay and that really
1: ends that sort of ends the you know the 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 big finale seemingly but then we get a little acoustic interlude where paul comes back and does blackbird So it'll be like a live performance, the first live performance since he sat on the windowsill of Cavendish Avenue and weirdly played it to the fans
0: outside. So this is his 1968 version of being allowed do yesterday.
1: Yes, I think that's his kind of little solo (laughs) spot. Then I think Nicky Hopkins is on stage, uh, Eric Clapton is on stage, and after Blackbird, John gets to kick in with Revolution, Mm -hmm. the very loud and noisy version and then Why My Guitar Gently Weeks with Eric Clapton is what seems to be the big finale. But there's more. <laughs> Go because on. Because then they will come back on and they will do their huge smash hit single, Hey Jude. Yep. And by the end of that, everybody is on stage. So you've got Mary Hopkin, you've got James Taylor, you've got Donovan, Scylla Black, Alan Ginsberg in his harmonium everybody's on stage. Perfect. Thank
0: you. Good night. As good as that is, and that is good, um, I I think if we're in the white album zone and they're promoting the white album, um, yeah, not every white album song would be suited for a live crowd, but there's a trio of songs on the white album that actually come together back to back on the white album that I think should be considered okay. for a live show, which is, Everybody's Got Something to Hide Except Me and My Monkey, Sexy Sadie and Helter Skelter. I think there's a place for those three songs, one, two or three of them in a set list as well, because I really think to have heard the Beatles doing one of those three songs live in 68 would have been a treat. Could they have pulled those off live? Well, it's a wonder. Well, you see, if they have Nicky Hopkins, they can do a really kick-ass Sexy Sadie. Um, Maybe the the wild one there is Everybody's Got Something to Hide. But Helter Skelter... That was such an amorphous song with lots of different versions that you can, you know, and, and you and me have seen Paul do it live in his recent set lists. Yes. And it actually still is a song that just kicks open the door when it gets dropped at a gig. You're like, whoa, whoa, this is wild. When did that happen?
1: When did Helter Skelter become
0: the big song? That's a good question. And obviously the answer is when Bono did it for Rattlin' Hum. Of course. Because <laughs> <laughs> do you remember he, um, he stole it back from Charles Manson? That's what he told everybody. Leave, Seriously,
1: <laughs> when did Helter Skelter become a big song? I, I first heard Helter Skelter on the rock and roll compilation. Oh yeah. Because I didn't have the White Album uh, at that point. And I don't remember it sort of thinking, mm-hmm. wow, this is a Beatles classic. Because it doesn't really sound like anything else. No, it doesn't. Do and it 's comparatively recently, I know Paul has had a career now stretching back several hundred years, but it 's only in that sort of the, the last what twenty years would it be twenty five years i 've lost mm. track of time that this <laughs> has become a, a staple of his set list.
0: Yeah, I, I, well, personally, I first heard Helter Skelter, No Joke, on Rattle and Hum. I knew... Of course you did. I did. And I knew the song was a song, Um, you know, I was, I was quite young at the time, obviously. And I knew it was a song that had been involved, that people had heard this song and they'd gone crazy and murdered people. I knew the story of the song, but I'd never heard the song. So the U2 version was the first version I heard, and... You know, I was quite a fraught child, and I was like, oh my God, I hope this song doesn't make me want to murder anyone. I mean, it might make, make you want to murder Bono, but uh it was then, because I'd known the song through Rattlin' Home, I ended up buying the White Album. So, you know, it's a bit like when an X-Factor winner covers Leonard Cohen. These little acorns do grow into something useful eventually, I would say. You it know? all worked out in the end. It all worked out in the end. And if you've been affected by any of the issues of Bono singing Helter Skelter, there's a a number you can call.
1: You're going to take out the 66 songs and you're going to drop in Sexy Sadie. I'm writing this down, Sexy
0: Sadie. (laughs) I wouldn't mind Sexy Sadie, Me and My Monkey and Helter Skelter, yeah. Anything else from the White Album? No, I mean... Wild wild Honey Pie? (laughs) I mean, I wouldn't mind a bit of Why Don't We Do It In The Road, you know? If they wanted to, they could just... uh, throw a bit of that in, but that's a bit esoteric. I don't think 68 audiences could have could have handled that. Um, but I'm sure nothing as real listeners will be quite happy to throw their suggested December 1968 set list into the online arena for discussion.
1: Well, I have unluckily come up with 13-song set lists. So if people would like to produce a 12 or 13-song uh, set list for the Beatles in December 1968, we will... Receive them
0: and discard them in favour of our own better set list. <laughs> okay, listeners, you've heard the gauntlet being thrown. Uh, get to it. Uh, I suppose the postscript to all of this is that Paul eventually does play the Roundhouse. He does. In 2007,
1: there was a report and it said, Sir Paul McCartney rolled out Beatles classics such as Hey Jude and The Long and Winding Road at his intimate show at the Camden Roundhouse last night. The event was part... Of BBC Electric Proms and Sawmarket, enjoy banter and plenty of cringeworthy quips in front of the three thousand strong
0: crowd. So everything you would want from a Paul McCartney gig. Yes, he said at one point there must be a full moon because we're howling. How okay? And okay. Uh, Stella and Mary were there. Um, yeah, that was part of the same series of concerts that I mentioned the last time round, where I saw Ray Davies. But obviously, I was not able to get tickets for. Paul that time I
1: tried This would have been A great concert Because He did Eleanor Rigby I've got a feeling Follow the sun mm-hmm. He did follow the sun That would be a nice little You know Yep Surprise nugget um, And it said uh, the set was heavily Weighted towards His lesser known Solo efforts And the Odd Wings track So This is the kind of Set list you think Yeah do that now Do your lesser known solo efforts and some wings. That just
0: meant some stuff off the new album, Memory Almost Full. I think that was the bit. I think he threw in Nod Your Head and um, House of Wax or one or two of those. The two worst songs on the album. What was that song? Uh, Only Mama Knows. That was the one he kept playing all the time at that point. Only Mama Knows. Um, It was was shown on the BBC and it occasionally pops up on Paul McCartney nights, if you want to look. And uh, was that the last time he was at the Roundhouse?
1: That's the only, only time... He ever, ever played there, except for the <laughs> second time ah. when he appeared there in November 2017. Hmm. So little Stephen and the Disciples of Soul were playing. And towards the end of the set, Van Zant said, I've got a friend of mine that wants to come out. We need to finish some unfinished business. Say hello to Mr. Paul McCartney. So what did he mean by unfinished business?
0: Well, the unfinished business was uh, they needed to complete a performance of I Saw Her Standing There. So Paul had wandered on stage as a special guest with Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band in Hyde Park in 2012, And he was due to do a two-song performance at the end of the show, the second song being I Saw Her Standing There. But they pulled the plug because Hyde Park is the least fun place to ever go and see a gig. They turn the sound down and they finish early. You heard it here first, folks. And uh, uh, so he uh, made good with the little Stephen um, by turning up in the Camden Roundhouse to do that performance of uh, I Saw Her Standing There. And Stephen Van Zandt, who's generally a grateful type, was quite delighted with the whole event
1: he was absolutely delighted he said it was one of the most thrilling moments of my life it was an incredibly generous endorsement of my own work and just the encouragement my new artistic rebirth needed and the best thing is you can hear that performance on a steve van Zandt live cd set which also includes him at the cavern ah. with the disciples of soul and i highly recommend it And I'm here to tell you that I would rather spend (laughs) two hours in the company of Steve Van Zandt than 30 minutes in the company of Mr. Bruce Springsteen. I think Steve Van Zandt (laughs) is fantastic. Yeah, Bruce. It was uh, lovely of Steve to have given Bruce,
0: kickstarted Bruce's career. I've, um, yeah, Bruce Springsteen remains an enigma to me. I'm currently listening to some Bruce Springsteen podcasts to try and understand the man. But I, 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 you know, it's just not for me. And, you know, maybe I should leave, leave it on that bombshell. I have seen him three times live and
1: I kind of get the live experience. I, I, I do, but I have tried with records and I just don't get it. But Steve Van Zandt, I, since I saw him in Lilyhammer...
0: <laughs> um. <laughs> Who doesn't love Steve Van Zandt? Um, everybody loves Steve Van Zandt. Everyone loves Steve Van Zandt. Uh, and there you have it: the Beatles at the Roundhouse, the gig that didn't happen. You know, there's still an awful lot to talk about, even for something <laughs> t- essentially invisible that didn't exist. Something, something t- that two t- hours <laughs> on. Something that didn't exist. <laughs> that's our, that's our skill. Uh, but what do you think, everybody? If you want to put together a um, December 1968 playlist. We'd be very interested to see them. Uh, You know, it's mad to think the amount of material that they were putting out at the time that they could have toured a year later in December 69 with a totally different set list. It's just, it's just absolutely sensational stuff. But we always want to continue the conversation online. We remain available in all the usual places. www.nothingisrealpod.com is the website. Beatles Pod on X, the Nothing Is Real Facebook group uh, Stephen will let you in There's about 8,000 people there now um, All having rows about things <laughs> And uh, we're also on Instagram Mastodon And you know We've got a mailing list Which we try not to trouble you With too many emails um, But we're always delighted To hear from you But for now I'm Jason Carty I'm Steve Van Zandt <laughs> Little Stephen Cockcroft. <laughs> and this has been Nothing Is Real Thanks for listening Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to Nothing Is Real. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you did, why not become a member? You'll get access to ad-free content, bonus episodes, and so much more. Follow the link in the show notes, sign up on Acas Plus, or visit our website, nothingisrealpod.com.